We have been looking at a very difficult passage of Scripture, but I think we have worked our way through it and come to a basic understanding of it. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no way pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. And uh, we've taken a lot of time to go through this. Uh, it's, a, it's one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to interpret and understand. And I think we've I th at least come to a basic understanding and agreement of what we see here. The Old Testament scriptures, especially the law, are still valid and authoritative for today. They still have purpose. They'll always have purpose until every part of it has been fulfilled. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not, Paul said in Romans 3.31. On the contrary, we established the law. And then 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, all scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The law is a judge, according to Romans 2, 12 through 15. And the apostles, in writing the New Testament on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, used the Old Testament as authoritative in their teaching. I'm doing a little bit of review here. Fulfillment does not set it aside. And remember that the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets, is being fulfilled in stages. It doesn't set it aside, but it does confirm its truthfulness, its authoritativeness. It is still useful for its purpose in pointing to Christ. Then it looked forward. Today it helps us to substantiate and prove the authenticity of the ministry of Christ. What parts of the Old Testament have been fulfilled? Well, the ceremonial and judicial law, but not the moral law. We'll look at that in just a minute. The sacrifice of Christ, the veil of the temple being rent in two, the teaching of Hebrews is uh, about Jesus' sacrifice, his high priestly office, Jerusalem destroyed, and now the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled, ushered in, numerous Gentiles being saved, food restrictions being abolished, their purpose has been fulfilled. We went through all these verses. Now some new material. And Matt, this hits home for the next chapter we're going to be studying. Israel is no longer the theocratic nation. The church is. Take a look in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 21 and verse 43. Matthew chapter 21 and verse 43. Israel is no longer the theocratic nation. Jesus said in Matthew 21, 43, after he gave a, the parable of the householder, he says, Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you. And remember in our study, the kingdom of God, the church is part of the kingdom of God. The church is not the kingdom of God, it's part of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God shall be taken from you, meaning the nation of Israel, and given to a nation who will bring forth the fruits of it. Kind of what we were reading in 
Isaiah chapter 5. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. So Jesus is very clearly stating that there's going to come a time that the nation of Israel will no longer be the center of attention, as it, w- as it were. No longer the theocratic nation. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a people of his own, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Who is he talking about? Gentiles. This is language that is right out of the book of Jeremiah, which was applied to the nation of Israel. And so, something is going on in God's program, if you would, where we have become the people of God. We have become those who are being ruled by God through Christ. If that's not plain enough, go to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Now, it's not often that the Apostle Paul breaks out in the kind of praise that he does here at the end of of chapter 11 of the book of Romans. Look at verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, who, or who hath uh, first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. What was Paul responding to? Well, the truth that we find here in Romans chapter 11. And what is Paul giving us? Well, let's read the chapter. I'm not going to expound the whole chapter, but I'm going to say a few things here and there. Verse 1, I say then, hath God cast away his people? In other words, is God done with Israel? What's the answer? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Know ye not what the scripture saith of Elijah, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed thy prophets, they've dug down thine altars, and I am left alone. And they seek my life. What did God say to him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if it be by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more of grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Verse 7. Israel hath not obtained that which it seeketh for, But the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their back always. I say then, 
Have they stumbled that they should fall? Now, what Paul is trying to get people to understand is why Israelites are not being saved. Right? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come unto who? The Gentiles, us, to provoke them, Israel, to jealousy. Now, if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh, meaning the Israelites, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them, Israel, be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. Now notice verse 17. Before I read any more, there's one thing, I mean, we just have to identify some very specific truths here. Number one, there's only one tree. The branches are either Israel or the Gentiles, but there's only one tree meaning there's only one people of God. There's only one group of people that God is concerned about, and those are his people. Does that involve Israelites? Yep, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. Does that involve the Gentiles? Yes, but there's one tree. There's one people. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, meaning the blessing of God, be they at this point spiritual blessings, and I'll explain that, boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. In other words, here's the proper attitude. For if God spared not the natural branches, in other words, folks, we need to understand this, they were natural branches. Whose tree is it? Well, it's God's tree, but who belongs there? The nation of Israel. Okay. Take heed, lest they, he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them who fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt also be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. I love that verse. doesn't matter what's happened to the nation of Israel and individuals in particular. God is able to save their souls and put them back into the tree. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this ministry, lest ye be wise in your own conceits, that blindness, blindness in part has happened to Israel for how long? Until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in until that's been fulfilled. And so, verse 26, all Israel shall be saved. That's yet future. 
As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. Even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. And then he breaks out into that praise. Oh, the death. In other words, he understood God's plan. God is always intended to save Gentiles. But today... We have been grafted into God's tree, which the natural branches have been broken out of, off of. We, and the best way I can explain it is we are experiencing the spiritual blessings of the kingdom of God. And the nation of Israel will be grafted into their tree once again in the future. And they will not only experience the spiritual blessings of the kingdom of God, but all of the physical blessings of the kingdom of God as well, meaning the millennial kingdom, the land, the temple, all of that, where they will lead, they will once again become the head of the nations. That's not yet been fulfilled. That's so part of my reason in reading this is there is coming a day when all of Israel will be saved. And they will receive, they will recognize, receive, and fall on their knees in front of their Messiah. That day is coming. But because of their unbelief, we've been grafted into that tree. Christ is now our head. And his law in our hearts is our rule as we are part of the kingdom of God. And so there is the moral law that is being fulfilled in us today. It's called the law of love. It's called the first and the second greatest commandments. It can be summed up in this phrase, the royal law of love. What is interesting is John uses the word lawlessness in 1 John 3, 4. And he says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. In other words, we, when we sin, are showing that we are transgressing the law. So is the law still valid? Yes. Notice what Jesus said. Well, actually, let's turn to James chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. James chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. If ye fulfill, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to have you turn to all these, but I'm going to show you the sheer number of verses that still talk about the law in the New Testament. I mean, there are a lot of them. If ye fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect of persons, ye commit sin, and are convicted of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. 
For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Keep that phrase in mind, law of liberty. In other words, there is a law, or I should say, the law, today for us, gives freedom. It liberates us. I think John put it this way, that his law is not what? Burdensome. Why is that? Well, turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. You'll recognize this passage of Scripture, but in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, it took me a while to understand this verse. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. And we understand that's the fruit of the Spirit. But this is the part I never really understood. Against such there is no law. What does that mean? What does it mean there, there's no law against these things? These attributes, this fruit of the Spirit, there's nothing in the law that says you can't have these. You can't act this way. You can't do this. In fact, if you are filled with the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is being produced in our lives, we are fulfilling the law. It is a law that gives freedom, that gives liberty, because we have the inner motivation, we have the inner power, we have the hostility taken away from us, we have the power to obey what God intended us to obey in the first place. Through who? person of the Holy Spirit. This really gets exciting. If you understand that the law has been written in our hearts. And I came from a group of people called dispensationalists who said that the believer has nothing to do with the law. I would agree with that in this respect. We have nothing to do with the law for salvation. But we have everything to do with the law for sanctification. Notice what Jesus said in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. He's responding to somebody. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything hangs on those two things, loving God and loving your neighbor. Let me give you an example. Let's say I built a second story to my home, and out that second story I put this, this deck overlooking the woods and the orchard, okay, a place where we can entertain, have people over for dinner, and just, just have a wonderful time looking out at God's creation. Right? And I'm going to invite Matt and Sarah and Philip over. It's going to be our inauguration of this great deck to overlook everything but I don't put up a hand railing. Oops. Do I love them if I don't put up a hand railing? 
Did you know that the, the Old Testament law had a specific regulation? If they put up a second story, they were supposed to put a railing around that. Why? Well, they don't want people to fall off, right? Why should I put up a hand railing so Matt doesn't sue me? No, I put up a hand railing because I love them enough to care for their physical safety that I don't want them, especially Philip. Matt can fall. That's okay, but not Philip. Just recently, I had help to bring my books into my house. And we came down the outside stairwell, which, by the way, when you guys came, it was nice and clean, wasn't it, and dry. See, what you don't know is I spent about... 45 minutes cleaning that stairway from all the leaves and muck and mud that was in there. Why did I do that? Because I don't want to get sued? No. I did that because I loved the people enough who did that for me to protect their physical safety so they didn't slip on those leaves on the hard concrete steps. Did I obey the law out of a sense of obligation? No, I obeyed the law out of a sense of duty, out of a sense of love for people. That's what this is saying. Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness, you should not covet. And if there are any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the, get this, fulfillment of the law. Galatians 5.14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. John 13, 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. John 15, 12, This is my commandment, that ye love one another, as I have loved you. 1 Corinthians 9, 21, To those who are without law, Paul is talking about himself, as without law, not being, now this is in parentheses in this verse, Paul says, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. That's the Apostle Paul talking. James 2.8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. And then 1 John 4.21, this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. I've read a lot of verses. But what it means is we have a relationship to the law as believers today. Not for salvation. I mean, that's clear. Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 2. We don't have to keep the law to be righteous before God. In fact, we can't keep the law to be righteous before God, to be accepted by God, to be saved. We can never be justified by the law, ever. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. We cannot be justified by the law of Moses, Acts chapter 13, verse 39. We are not related to the law for salvation. That law, according to Colossians 2, was nailed to the cross. 
the, 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 the enmity was slain. The middle wall of partition has been broken down. We have been delivered from the curse of the law. We have been delivered from the penalty of the law by Christ. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He became a curse for us. And so God now bestows by grace that which he demanded under the law, which was righteousness. Numerous verses there. Christ is our righteousness. The law was not designed to save man and could not save man. And so we are not under the law as it pertains to salvation. But we are under it. I emphasize that word under it because that's not the right way to say it. But we are under it for sanctification because we are not under the law. The law is in us for sanctification. In other words, the law is being fulfilled in us by the Spirit of God on a daily basis. What that means, folks, is according to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, and Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 16, we are already under the new covenant. Because part of the aspect of the new covenant, which was prophesied to Israel, and the Gentiles are now experiencing because they are being grafted into that tree, the one tree, the new covenant states that he's going to forgive us our sins. Do we have that? Yeah. Buried in the depths of the sea, separated from us as far as the east is from the west, our sins are gone. But part of the new covenant was also that the, the word of God, the, the law of God, would be written in our hearts. Is that true? Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10 says it's true. So we are experiencing some of the spiritual benefits of what was promised to the nation of Israel because we've been grafted into their tree, God's tree. And we are experiencing the blessings of God, part of which was his law written in our hearts. And the fruit of the Spirit that is produced in us are qualities that don't need restraining I mean, in principle, people that are living the, the way of being filled by the Spirit and that fruit being produced in their lives, if they are living this way, they will be doing what? They will be fulfilling all that the law requires. So some people say we're not under the law, we're under grace. You know what the purpose of grace is? The purpose of the Spirit of God and the purpose of God writing the law in our hearts is so that we can keep it out of love for God. We are enabled to keep it by grace, but not the strict adherence of it. We are fulfilling on a daily basis the true character of the law, the inner character of the law. Romans 8, 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, let me digress for just a moment. We talked about the Sabbath last week. 
The Sabbath is part of the Ten Commandments, which many people say is the, the moral law. I think we were able to prove from the scriptures that the Sabbath has been fulfilled in Christ. That does not mean that we don't set aside a day of worship for our great God. Now, nowhere, well, in the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, they talk about the Christian Sabbath. Nowhere will you find a New Testament writer that does that or a church father that says that. But the day of worship for believers seems to have moved from Saturday to Sunday, the first day of the week, which is called in the Bible the Lord's Day. We do that because of the resurrection of Christ and that the Sabbath has been fulfilled. Now let me ask you a question. Out of love for God, the law written in our hearts, wouldn't we want to keep one day out of seven as a day of worship and rest for God? Isn't that something we would want to do? Come on, you can shake your heads. Yes. Out of love for God, wouldn't we want to keep it that day somewhat special for him? Yes. Do we have to obey all of the strict rules as they applied to the Sabbath? No. But out of love for God, we set aside one day a week to fellowship, to worship, to rest, as the Sabbath was for the Jews. We do that on Sunday. Holiness and sanctification, folks, is not something we received in a practical sense. Positionally, we've been sanctified, but that needs to work itself out practically every day in our lives. And what is that? Holiness and sanctification in a practical sense is keeping the law. It's obedience to the moral law that is written in our hearts and we live it out on a daily basis. We are righteous when we keep the true nature of the law. The Spirit of God enables us to keep the moral law, which is summed up in loving God and loving our neighbor. So do we have a relationship to the law? You betcha. Does it mean we go back to the Old Testament, we find out the regulations about putting a hand railing around the second floor uh, deck or, or, or whatever out there and just obey that out of strict adherence or do we do it out of an inner motivation because we love one another? It's that inner motivation. Jesus taught us that if we love him, we would keep his commandments. What are his commandments? Well, throughout the New Testament. Compare Matthew 7.21 with Matthew 5.20. What is the will of the Father in heaven? Righteousness. And what is that righteousness? These sayings of Jesus, which are an exposition of the true nature of the law. Internal, as, expo- as opposed to external. And may I add, out of love instead of a sense of obligation or fear of punishment. God's will is the keeping of his permanent moral law which is still valid and authoritative for today. And so we must keep the law of Christ, which is summed up in loving one another. And Matt, I don't want you to fall off a second story. Okay. Christ left us an example, didn't he? 
that we should follow his steps, 1 Peter 3.21. And we are to be imitators of Christ, to become like him. What did he do? He obeyed his father. And he obeyed the true nature of the law. Not the traditions that were handed down, the scribes and Pharisees held to, but the true nature of the law. Let me read you some verses. Psalm 40 and verse 8, Jesus says, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. Hebrews 10, 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. John 15, 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 2 Corinthians 3, 3, Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God not on the tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Hebrews 10, 16, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Paul says in Romans 7, 22, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. Jeremiah 31, 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. I believe that's the passage that's quoted in 1 Peter 2. Jeremiah 32:40. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I'll put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Wow, it took me a while to get through that. You have to understand, part of the reason it took me so long to go through that is because when I was preaching this before, it was a group of people who didn't believe we had any relation to the law at all. I had to take some great pains to, recorrect, to correct some false thinking. Over and over again, we are told that the law is summed up in, in two things, loving God and loving our neighbor. And that the fruit of the Spirit that's being produced in us is not, there's no law against that. In fact, if you go on, you're going to find out that the royal law of love and the law of liberty is being freed from this corrupt flesh, sinful nature within us, being freed from that by the power of the Holy Spirit so we can obey the law as God intended. And so I'm going to ask you a question. How are you doing? How are you doing in seeing the law being fulfilled in your lives day by day through the power and person of the Holy Spirit being freed from sin, and living out, putting a hand railing on the second floor because you love your neighbor, or digging a hole and putting barricades around it so nobody falls in. Or 
given money as a Christmas gift to an unworthy preacher, which I thank you for. How are we doing in fulfilling the true nature of the law in our lives day by day? Because really that's the task at hand for us as we live, being grafted into that tree, God's tree, and producing fruit that will bring glory to him. Isaiah chapter 5, it's kind of interesting that you chose that passage. Isaiah chapter 5, that's what God is looking for is, is fruit from our lives. And what is that fruit? Well, it's the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit, there is no law against. The fruit of obeying from the heart with the proper motivation, God's law. And he's fulfilling that in us today. Lord, thank you for your word and Lord, I hope I've been able to make it plain and help us to understand what our duty is today and what our relationship is to your great law. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.